It is so fun to watch you guys all mixing and mingling. And I'm up here in the screen, and I'm trying to see the countdown, and I couldn't see it. And I'm way up over here, and I'm thinking, OK, great. I've missed my, my, my cue already, and I'm, I'm messing up here. But um, thank you for finding your seats. And just thank you guys for just for the just watching your fellowship is so neat. Today, we have an awesome opportunity, not just that the sixth graders get to see what big church is about but that we get to crack open the book of Daniel for the first time. So I'm really looking forward to that. The book of Daniel is rich in theology and in end times prophecy, so it's an extremely challenging book to preach. Do I keep going? Okay, because there's a lot of me I hear. Um, but it's also full of stories that, that we become very familiar with um, from our childhood Sunday school and from sermon illustrations. So I'm going to approach Daniel a little differently today. Usually we read the text and then we pull out some major points from the passage. And I'm concerned that if we start that way here, our familiarity with the passage, with the book, is going to work against us. And by the time we get to the narrative, we're going to miss some of the important details of the story. So I propose that I'm going to read just the first seven verses of the book of Daniel, which contains the whole setting for the book, and use that to provide a short uh, introduction. And then we'll come back to the text, and we'll read that, pull out the points, and dissect it. Okay. So are you okay with that? Yep. Good, because you have to be. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We're starting. We're launching. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar and the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now I'm going to cheat, I'm going to drop down to verse 21, um, because it's really important, it's salient to our, to our introduction. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So the first seven verses provide us sort of a background to the whole story of Daniel, to the, the introduction to the book. And as you can see from the passage, this was not a good time for Israel. Babylon was the greatest army in the world at the time, and they had laid siege to Jerusalem. That means they had encircled the city, and they were starving them out and wearing them down. They were taken over, and many of the royal court were taken into captivity and transported in chains the approximate 700 miles back to uh, Babylon. So what led up to this historic moment in the history of Israel? Essentially, God's people had drifted from God. Remember that God made a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants that he would be their God and they would be his people. However, now they had drifted. Now listen, 
because this is really, really crucial to the understanding of the book of Daniel and the message of the book of Daniel. God sent three prophets, men that spoke for God, to do three things, to warn, to prepare, and to remind. So the three prophets, they came in succession, and the first was Zephaniah, and he was sent to warn God's people. Basically, he said, you're drifting, you're drifting away from God. God calls his people through Zephaniah rebellious, but he does it, in a, he does it to reveal God's heart. And at the end of the book, there's a special message God says for his, for his people. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So to fully understand God's reasons for punishing his people and sending them into captivity, we need to understand God's heart towards his people, whether they were rebellious or not. I will rejoice over you with gladness. I will quiet you with my love. I will exalt over you with loud singing. God loves his people. And this punishment, the captivity, was only a way, was the only way to bring them back. Then God sends Habakkuk with a message to prepare. Habakkuk says, in essence, God warned you about this, but you didn't listen, so prepare for the consequences. God told his people through Habakkuk, not as a threat, but to prepare for the consequences. Actually, the exact opposite of a threat. I tell you to prepare because what's, what, what is about to happen, I want you to know it. And I want you to know that I'm in control through this whole thing. I've always been in control, and I will always be in control. This captivity and being torn, fr torn from their homes is the most catastrophic thing that has ever happened to Israel. The land that God gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be given to another. So what would we be saying at a time like that if we were in his shoes, if we were in their place? How might we respond during this really difficult trial? What would we be asking? Where are you, God? I could see myself thinking that. God, are you really there? I've heard that before. But God is there, and he's fully in control, and he wants them to know that. So finally, God sends the prophet Jeremiah to remind. Jeremiah reminds Judah that because of their rebellion, they're about to become defeated. And Jeremiah reminds, and Jeremiah reminds them of the most important thing. Jeremiah reminds them of God's promise, the unchanging God and his irrevocable promise. Three times, three different times in the book of Jeremiah, he reminds God's people that I will be your God and you will be my people. He gives the same message in Jeremiah 7.23, 11.4, and 30.22. God is saying, remember all that I told you, and I'm still in control. I'm faithful. I'm unchanging. I know what's about to happen, and I am in control. Enter the Babylonians, literally. But it's not just Nebuchadnezzar who ruled during Daniel's time. It was Belshazzar. 
Then the Persians, modern Iran, defeated the Babylonians, and Darius reigned over kings. And then Darius was replaced by Cyrus was replaced by Darius. This is why we read why we read verse 21. And it's easy to think of this kind of thing as just Bible filler. You know, well, we just got sort of a little history lesson, but let's get back to what's the message of, of Daniel. That's not true. There's a message here, and it's the message of the God of the book of Daniel. Kingdoms are going to come, and kingdoms will go. But God is the one constant through this all. He's the one sovereign one. As powerful as Daniel seemed during the siege, as, as, I'm sorry, as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar seemed during the siege, he died and was replaced. As powerful as the Babylonians were, the Persians defeated them. But all during this time, there was one undefeated king, and he was the king of kings. God is the constant. God is sovereign over the great and over the small. God was with his people in Jerusalem, and now he's with them in exile. We have one more question to answer before we dive into the rest of the book of Daniel. Who is Daniel? Well, let me start by waking up the back row there. Can I get an amen? amen. There we go. Okay, so this series should be of special interest to Cross Current and our young adults. Because do you guys realize that Daniel could be as young as 16 when all of this happened, when all of this started? Thank you for the whistle. The name Daniel actually means God is judge. Daniel was either a member of the royal family or some level of nobility. Daniel was a young man who had lived through a lot of change, born into a kingdom that had fallen into disobedience. They were now set upon by the greatest army on the earth. He lived through a year-long siege where the Babylonians armed forces encircled Jerusalem and cut off all food and water. Then Jerusalem surrendered the Babylonians entered the city and evaluated whoever was left. If you were strong enough to work, you became slave labor. If you weren't strong enough to work, you were eliminated. But if you showed wisdom, insight, you were good looking, you showed potential, you were shipped off to be tested to the court, in the court of the conquering king. No pressure on Daniel. He stood out as smart, good looking, clever, charming. He made a really good first impression. He was probably in his late teens or early 20s, and he was picked as a high potential and selected for a very exclusive prep school. Daniel, as we will see, was a very remarkable man in more ways than one. So, in summary of the book, the Babylonian Empire had just toppled the Assyrian Empire and had now taken Judah into captivity. The Babylonian king were kings of the hill, but only for about 70 years, and were, were then defeated by the Persians, where we meet King Cyrus. We have changing kingdoms. We have test after test involving food, and visions, and fiery furnaces, and hungry lions. But the one thing, the one thing that is constant is that God proves himself greater than any threat. So the message of the book of of Daniel is one of a God who is sovereign over all, faithful to his promises, and who loves his people. So we've read the first part of Daniel chapter 1, the history part. Now I want to transition to scene 1 of the book of Daniel. starts at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear for my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you look worse or in worse condition than the youths who are of your, uh, of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh after eating vegetables than the rest who had eaten the king's food. So the steward took away the food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. As for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should come, that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who were in the kingdom. So the big idea for Daniel chapter 1 is both personal and foundational to the Christian faith. God is sovereign, and I can trust him. And we can pull out of this passage, we can glean from this passage three points. The first point, Daniel trusted God in a foreign land. The second point, Daniel trusted God in how he dealt with others. And finally, Daniel trusted God, and he passed the test. So let's go to the first point. Daniel trusted God in a foreign land, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel was offered fettuccine alfredo with bacon. He was offered baby back ribs, and he was offered crab cakes. So I want to take this moment and remind you there will be a food truck after church. But Daniel has to be tempted to say, what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon, right? But he doesn't act on that temptation. Location was not the determining factor for Daniel. City or state was not the determining factor for Daniel. Babylon, Jerusalem, Baltimore, these were not the defining elements of Daniel's decision-making process. What influenced now, what more than influenced Daniel was in his decision-making process was one thing, ownership. So when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people, Daniel said, that's for me. I'm God's. I belong to God. I will follow God. But we have our first plot twist for those of us who don't live in Babylon but are in Kingsville, Maryland. Mexico, we know, is a foreign land. China, Thailand, Malawi, they're all foreign lands. But do we understand that for those of us who follow Christ, 
The United States is a foreign land. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. My citizenship, my ultimate citizenship, is in heaven. I love my house. I'm looking forward to a family vacation that we're taking later this fall, but my heart yearns for my home where my citizenship is. My heart yearns to look that one day on the one who took all my sins away. There's a feast coming, and I have an individual invitation to that party, and I'm looking forward to that than any, more than anything you can imagine. Now, I'm going to try to provide balance at different times. I'm going to vote and pay taxes and collect Social Security if there's any left when I get there. But my allegiance is to the King of Heaven. My obedience is joyfully given to the Prince of Peace who has taken permanent residence in my heart. So we have two areas of application at this point. The first is, it is election season, and I hope to vote in a God-honoring way. <clears throat> but no matter who wins or loses, I will not be shaken because God is in control. God is sovereign. After the results of the last election, or this election, or all the elections before and all the elections after, are in the hands of the one who holds the ocean and measures the oceans in the palm of his hands. Isaiah 40:12 tells us, Daniel trusted in God in a foreign land, and I will too. But I realize that this is a foreign land and that heaven is my home. The second part of the application is for our young people. Can I get an amen? I've split affections now. Daniel trusted God in a foreign land. Here at church may seem like home to you, and when you're away at college, it may seem like a foreign land. If you attended a Christian high school or you were homeschooled, it may seem like Babylon to you. It may seem like Sodom and Gomorrah to you. You may have grown up in a loving Christian home, and now you walk through the doors of a public high school, and the culture is as foreign to you as another country. Trust me, you will hear ideas that are foreign to you. And your peers will live lifestyles that may be opposed to God's word. That does not matter. Whether you live at home or in a school with your buddies, your citizenship is in heaven, which determines how you think, how you act, and what motivates you. So I went away to college and I wrote my freshman English paper on the French classic Candide by Voltaire. It is a distinctly anti-Christian book written during the Enlightenment to mock Christians. Voltaire was not just a non-believer, he was an influential opponent to the Christian faith. Voltaire said in 1876 that 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. In essence, Voltaire said that by 1876, the only Bibles would be in antique stores collecting dust. Should we be angry at these statements? Should we be outraged? Should we laugh? Well, there is a chapter two to this story. Because of his bold statements, Voltaire was chased out of very Catholic France 
and took up residence in very tolerant Geneva. And in August of 1836, 58 years after Voltaire's death, Voltaire's former residence in Switzerland was being used as a repository or a warehouse for Bibles and religious tracts. The house, the house at this time <laughs> had become the, pre, the uh, home of the president of the Evangelical Society of Geneva. Score, God one, Voltaire zero. Can I get an amen? Okay, hold on. You walked into that trap. But that reaction that I had just shows, a, is a demonstration of the problem in our thinking, okay? Voltaire is dead. And I'm going to presume, I think relatively safely why, that he's not in heaven. That's not what we want. That's not what we're looking for. I want to see my heavenly Father's house filled with sons and daughters. I want to see heaven filled with people who, God forbid, may have voted differently than me. I want to see it filled with people who will worship God, filled with people who once mocked God or ignored God, as I once did. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against what an author might write. It's not against people. And I can feel that way because, contrary to popular belief, elections do not change the course of history. God does. Our high school or college classmates' behavior may be sanctified or sinful, but no matter what I see or what I hear, I will trust God in a foreign land. Let me take a moment to try to provide some context. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't support your favorite candidate. Do those things, but do them resting in trusting in God, and not in them, but in God first. So let's move on to the second point. Daniel trusted God with how Daniel dealt with others. 8b through 9, Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. As we read this narrative, we see a couple keys to the story. First, Daniel resolved. Daniel committed not to defile himself. Daniel had a conviction. He decided to obey God's law even in captivity. In fact, he was making a statement. I am one of God's people. I am set apart. I am one of God's people. I will obey the holy law no matter what the cost is. If I act like everyone else, I'm not set apart and I'm no longer holy. Daniel believed what God said about him, that he was chosen, dearly loved, and that the Lord rejoiced over him with gladness. So what are the keys to that passage? Well, Daniel committed to a practice that we talk about here at Grace often, and it's called the putting on and putting off. Okay, we find this principle in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24 to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness in true righteousness, the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Daniel made a decision a long time ago that he was not going to eat like everyone else. He was putting that off. He would be different and he would evidence his submission to God even in his eating habits. But there's a second key. In addition to putting something off, he put something on. Daniel acted as an emissary, a humble representative. 
he put on the mantle of a winsome representative of the throne of heaven. Deuteronomy 7.6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Daniel knew that he was chosen, holy, set apart, that he belonged to God, and as such, he represented God. Daniel put on that title and all that it entails of one who represents God. The New Testament calls us ambassadors. So when Daniel went to Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, he did not go arrogantly, he didn't put on airs, and he didn't go in full of self-importance. Daniel approached Ashpenaz meekly. Now, meek is a Bible word, and it has a very specific meaning. It does not mean weak. Actually, meekness means power or strength under control. Daniel was meek because he represented a powerful God. So let me illustrate with a picture. You are in that picture. Do you want to guess which one you are? We are small and harmless and maybe playful looking. And if all you saw was that first lion, you'd think, oh, let me go pet him. Seeing the second lion behind him might change your actions. Charles Spurgeon, the distinguished British preacher who lived in the mid-1800s, said this, and I quote, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength upon him whom you rely. Daniel did not say, I'm not eating this pagan slop. He didn't argue with Ashpenaz or Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel made an appeal. Would you allow me? This is gentle. This is meek. This is the language of a humble ambassador who's representing a very powerful ruler. Was this new for Daniel? I don't think so. As you, as you look back over that passage, it says God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the eunuchs. God gave Daniel favor because he acted in a way that disposed him towards a favorable opinion. During his appeal, he asked. During his appeal, he acted honorably because he represented his Lord, because this was not his home. Daniel lived as an ambassador on mission. He did not lose hope. He didn't give up focus of God, and he stuck to his convictions. But he did this in a way that was gentle and God-honoring because Daniel trusted God. Now, all of this happened 600 years before Jesus was born. What are the applications for us today? Well, when things don't go in our favor, we seem to want to come in guns a-blazing. Um, this is how it works for me. I have these sort of like all-day conversations in my head. When I see them, I'm going to tell them this, and I'm like editing it online, and I've got this long speech, and I'm just waiting to blast them with it. Anybody do that? Nobody. I'm, somebody else does that. <laughs> see, why are the husbands pointing to the wives? So, <clears throat> so um, you know, I, I get all of that. It, it starts to happen, and, but, but that is seldom enough for us. Instead, we, we, we want to kind of get that out somewhere. We want to approach them 
instead of approaching them with, with, with kind words, we want to get that out on social media. Can I, can I go ahead and post this about this person? Yeah, let me do that. That, brothers and sisters, is not how Daniel handled things. I'm pretty sure he did not have an Instagram account. I haven't looked, okay? And that's not how God would have us handle things. What is Daniel modeling for us here? Humility, gentleness, all born from a trust in God. Boys and girls, we're going to disagree. We're going to disagree with our families. We're going to be in conflict with those in our church, God forbid. And we're going to disagree during this election season. We need to remember some important things. God is sovereign, and I can trust him. God is sovereign, and I can trust him in my dealings with others. And I need to comport myself in a way that reflects honorably upon my Lord and King. Now, some of you have said something or texted something that you're thinking about right now. Some of you may need to go back to someone and resolve that conflict and maybe apologize. But some of you are thinking indignantly, there's a bunch of people that need to come back and apologize to me. So here's what you need to do. You need to go home, download this message, and listen again. So let's move on to our third point. As with all good mysteries, <clears throat> there's a final plot twist. Daniel trusted God, and he passed the test. Daniel said to Ashpenaz, test your servants. We eat veggie burgers, and in 10 days, you test us against the rest of the population. So Daniel was given a choice, eat and live or rebel and die. So Daniel thinks, I could lose my head over a ham sandwich. It's just a little thing. But obeying God is not a little thing. So Daniel proposes an alternative. Let me eat carrots and live. Now, pay attention, because this is masterful. With that proposal, Daniel does two things. Daniel puts pressure on Ashpenaz, who recognizes the risk. I could be put to death for cutting corners on the king's plan. So what does Ashpenaz does? Read the text. He passes it on to the steward with a wink on, like, let him do whatever he wants because he had been given favor. But Ashpenaz kind of had what we call deniable plausibility. The passage says, test your servants. But Daniel moves the test from himself to God. The passage says, test your servants, but it really says, test our bodies and see if they respond better to staying kosher. The test was not so that God would see if Daniel would obey. God is omniscient. He knows Daniel better than Daniel knows himself. He already knew that Daniel would be faithful. So if the test was not for Daniel, was not for God to see if Daniel would pass or fail, who was the test for? The test was for Daniel to see if God would be faithful. Who was put to the test? God, and he came through for Daniel. You know who else the test was for? It was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where were those guys? 
We know that they were in Daniel's Bible study at the University of Babylon, but only Daniel commits to not to defile himself. Only Daniel goes to Ashpenaz, the eunuch, and makes an appeal. But then Daniel says, test your servants, plural. Daniel talks, Shadrach and Meshach get dragged in. So I want to set the stage for this kind of, just picture this. So they all walk into breakfast for the first time. It's kind of like really, really nice. And you know, they've got the big pile of bacon in the middle of it. That's what I'm always looking for. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like sipping their coffee. And they see Daniel go and start to talk to the, the head eunuch. And they're like, kind of slide over there and hear what they're saying. Sipping their coffee. And they say, he says, I don't want to defile myself. And he says, well, I, I can't do anything about it. This is the king's orders. And he says, you know, why don't you put us to the test? And three guys go, <laughs> wait, Daniel, speak for yourself. Hang on a second. Two things. First of all, we're putting our necks on the line. The second of all, have you seen the spread? So they're tested. But God is, God is putting all of them to the test. And the test for the, those three to see is really, really important. And the reason it's important is because in chapter 3, Daniel, Daniel's away, I don't know, on a book tour or something, and these three guys are alone, and they're placed in an uncannily similar situation. But they get to see this. So you'll notice the slide on point three says he, the he is capitalized. That's the plot twist. Daniel was tested, and he passed the test to God. In essence, he was saying, talk to the lion behind me. God proved faithful, and that grew Daniel's faith. God proved faithful, which may have created faith from nothing for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So point three, Daniel trusted God, and he passed the test. If I could call up the worship team. So how does that apply 1,600 years later to us? Well, let me answer that by asking you a question. Who else was that test for? It was for us. Why else is that story included here? It's for us. Not to see what Daniel can do, but to see what God can do. Now, I've never faced death over a ham sandwich or a fiery furnace or hungry lions, but I am faced every day with the temptation to compromise, to shade the truth, which is a euphemism for lying, or to defile myself. Daniel's story reminds us that we can do hard things and we can obey God and we can see God work wonderful miracles. He's already worked a miracle. He's worked a bunch of them. God came to earth, he lived a perfect life, and he died to pay for our sins. God wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people, his cherished possession. Now, in a church this big, there's bound to be someone who's never had that kind of exchange with God, who's never had a conversation that goes something like this. God, I want you to be, I want to be yours. I want to accept all that you've done, and I want to follow you uncompromisingly. If you've not had that conversation with God, or you're wondering what all of this is about, 
where these are really different Bible stories than the ones you remember in Sunday school. There's going to be some pastors up here in the front afterwards who would love to talk to you and who would love to explain, answer any of your questions. So let me close by tying Daniel scene one and the, book of, and the introduction together. The book of Daniel is not the book of Daniel. It's the book of God. It's a book full of plot twists and surprises, but they all lead to the same conclusion. This is the book of God demonstrating his sovereignty in love. It is the book of God revealing his attention to every detail, including what's on your dinner plate. It's the book of God explaining and proving to us that he's in control even when he doesn't look like he's in control. So as you walk out for the rest of the week and you face temptations or worries or hardships, I want you to remember this one thing. God is sovereign and I can trust him.